This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Matt Continetti for a special Reaganism Live event. Matt Continetti is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon. He is the author of the new book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. Matt, why did you feel like you needed to write write this book? Sure. Um, And then what's interesting about it, well, there's many interesting things, but we went back a hundred years. I can imagine, all right, let's start it from when the party began. Lincoln. That's right. Today. Or, it would be a much lo- longer book. Okay, well, you know, uh, or uh, after World War II. Explain to me why, you know, the bookends are, uh, you know, this after World War I, 1920, till, till today. Sure. Well, maybe I'll start with uh, why I wrote it um, to begin with. Uh, the first uh, reason is um, I began really researching the history of the Republican Party and the conservative movement after the 2012 election. I've always had this hobby of reading old journalism. So when I arrived in Washington in 2003, I spent a lot of my off hours going through the archive of the magazine where I worked, the Weekly Standard, and then moving on to other archives, National Review, The American Spectator, The Public Interest, The New Republic, all these magazines that kind of define the political and cultural life of our nation. But I, I never really translated that into anything other than learning really how to write and just picking up a lot about culture and politics. After 2012, I became uh, acutely aware of the growing divide between Republicans and conservatives in the nation's capital and grassroots Republicans throughout the country on the issue of immigration in particular, but other issues as well. And I started to really investigate the causes for this separation. And as I did that, I found that there was a much larger story that needed to be told. That the way that the story of American conservatism has been presented over the years is rather narrow. It typically begins at the end of the Second World War, and it culminates with the election of the man whose institute uh, we're sitting in today. It's not we're, a terrible ending. Not a terrible ending, but it's not the actual ending. Okay. There's more to the story. And to understand what happened after Ronald Reagan, I found that you needed to understand what happened long before him, what happened prior to the formation of the conservative movement in America at the end of the Second World War. That's why I ended up talking about the right as opposed to conservatism, because I think the right is much more um, broader than just conservatism. We're going to get into the right, but but tell us what was happening specifically in that post-World War period. Sure. Well, uh, the real difference was the rise of Soviet Union and the threat of global communism. But the right, uh, while always being anti-socialist and anti-communist, didn't have a foreign policy of engagement in the world until after World War II and the beginning of the Cold War. Prior to World War II, the right in America was non-interventionist. It was extremely wary of becoming entangled in great power politics, in Europe in particular. The right was protectionist. The right supported the tariff. It wanted to insulate the American economy from global competition. And the right was restrictionist. It wanted to keep out immigrants, um, both illegal and legal uh, at that point. So when you look at the larger perspective of the American right over 100 years, as opposed to, say, the past 70 years, you find that the Republican Party of 1920 actually has many similarities with the Republican Party of 2020. 
Now, you make a point in the book, you say uh, Reagan, your chapter on Reagan was the you know, kind of most accomplished, I forgot the exact word, successful, really nice word, uh, going back to, to Roosevelt. Yes. Right. Now, Roosevelt, yeah. of course, is complicated. He was a Republican, and then he, he challenged uh, Taft. But a lot of what you just described, right, leadership in the world, um, trade, I'm one hit on, on, on immigration. You know, that, that Roosevelt is in that, Reagan's in that tradition of Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. So why is it uh, not an aberration, this, this kind of interwar period, 20s to, to World War II, uh, as opposed to being, as, as you argue in your book, kind of a more, fi the, the right is being more fixed place in, in, uh, in this period, in this kind of century of conservatism? Sure. Well, you know, it, it's interesting that you bring up uh, Teddy Roosevelt, um, who, you know, was in many ways an American progressive, certainly toward the end of his life. Um, became more enamored with progressive ideas, the idea that the federal government is going to be the agency of social uplift, that um, the American government, uh, the federal government is going to have the power to break up uh, monopoly, or especially even monopoly uh, in small towns, right, and, and cities. Um, it's in the 1920s where the Republican Party under Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge really rejects this idea, which uh, and defines itself against progressivism. So Harding and Coolidge stand for what they called Americanism or normalcy. Basically, what they believed to have been the status quo prior to the progressive era. And this was a remarkably successful political formula for them. The Republican Party in the 1920s was extremely popular, enjoyed huge margins. But uh, because of uh, Herbert Hoover's inability to deal with the Great Depression, and the uh, delegitimization of an America first foreign policy after the Pearl Harbor attack on the United States, the American right emerges from the Second World War on the fringes of American politics. Well, those are two big misses. Great Depression. Big hits. You know, big large sack on, on the homeland. There are a lot of big hits in my story. Right. Okay, and so we have the foundation for the right. And interesting, you note that very popular. I mean, this was good politics, is, is what you're saying in the right, and then we get to the post-war period. Um, interesting, in your book, the, the thread throughout, the, 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 it's, it's less about presidents mm -hmm. and more about the intellectuals. And, and, and Buckley, of course, figures first among the rest. Tell us about where Buckley pl plays in all of this. Obviously, it's, mm -hmm. it emerges in, in the 50s or so, and, and um, I really want to hone in on, 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 on Reagan. Um, mm -hmm in a second, but kind of set it up in terms of where, how, how your, your focus sure. emphasis on Buckley. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, my book is a synthesis of ideas and politics, and so it's unique among histories of the American right because it's neither an intellectual history nor a political history. It's a synthesis of both. And what I try to do is show how the intellectuals, the writers, the scholars, the policy wonks, uh, reacted to politics, tried to influence politics, and how they related to political leaders and political institutions. Uh, there's no greater example than this in the role that William F. Buckley Jr. played in the formation of post-war American conservatism. Uh, Buckley is extremely influential, uh, not only for representing a certain personality that many young people in particular wanted to emulate, the Buckley wit, the Buckley um, charm, the Buckley uh, ability in debate, right? But also as an institution builder, as someone who created National Review, the first weekly then bi-weekly uh, conservative journal of opinion. 
um, and in many years. Um, as somebody who uh, built up, helped to create the Young Americans for Freedom, who helped to create ISI, all these institutions that outlived him. And then finally, Buckley's important in really making anti-communism the foundation for the post-war American right. And it's anti-communism, opposition to the Soviet Union that's able to unite various bands of conservatives, from libertarians to traditionalists to later even the early neoconservatives. And in doing that, Buckley kind of changed the inflection of the foreign policy of the American right. The GW professor Alan Lichtman, I think, has a good framework. He describes the pre-World War II American right as being comprised of disengaged nationalists. They were nationalists, they believed in American power, they believed in American exceptionalism, but they thought that engagement with the world, involvement with the world, would corrupt America. Buckley changes this, and he's part of a trend coming out of the World War II and into the Cold War of engaged nationalism. Belief in American exceptionalism, a belief in American power, belief that America should not be tied down by multilateral institutions, but also belief that America needs to be involved in the world. It needs to deploy its forces forward in Europe. It needs to be long to the NATO alliance, um, and it needs to uh, embrace a policy of military intervention to defeat communism. So, so everything you just described is, of course, not what the right stood for prior uh, to Second World War. It's everything people would associate with what Reagan stood for in advance. It's also kind of what Ike was doing, what what Nixon uh, did. So, but of yeah. course, in your treatment of the book, you know, Ike and Nixon don't quite get you know recognition as. Uh, you know, this kind of leading conservative. No, they're not far of the right, and, and they never really have the support of the conservative right. movement. Explain that. Why do presidents kind of matter less? Here we are at a presidential well, foundation I, I think, institute. I got I got to challenge this notion that it's just the intellectuals. Uh, no, I think presidents matter quite a bit, and it's because of what those presidents, Eisenhower and Nixon, were doing that many of the conservatives were reluctant to embrace them. So, to understand uh, post-war American conservatism, you have to really think about it in terms of rollback. That was the phrase they used. Yep. And the Buckley conservatives wanted to roll back the welfare state at home. They wanted to undo the New Deal, which they felt was the revolution against which they were reacting. And they wanted to roll back communism abroad. They didn't seek to contain communism. They wanted to defeat it. Right. That was in distinction to the containment policy of Harry Truman, right. Right? which Eisenhower, despite making some um, comments early in the campaign in the presidency that he would take a more forceful stand, and certainly Dulles, his Secretary of State, um, took a more hawkish tone in the early period of his presidency, eventually came to embrace not only the New Deal domestically, but also the containment policy uh, abroad. And so for the, it's an oddity that this post-war conservative movement really comes into being defining itself against a very popular two-term Republican president, right? And yet it's because of those ideas that they uh, did not support Eisenhower or Nixon uh, when Nixon runs to succeed Eisenhower in 1960. And just briefly on the Nixon presidency, right? Nixon embraced a very sophisticated and complicated foreign policy. One element was what he called triangular diplomacy, trying to split China right, from the Soviet Union and leverage that to improve America's position relative to the Soviet Union. Another part was what was called detente, yep. this idea that we are going to lessen tensions with the Soviet Union 
through uh, recognizing that we may have to coexist with them and also embracing the idea of arms control. Both of those ideas, the recognition of China and the uh, um, uh, idea of detente, were extremely controversial among the post-war conservatives. And, and certainly was defining for, for Reagan, which we'll get to in, in a minute. I mean, that was 1976 on the you know, GOP convention floor. Shocking yeah. to think a foreign policy issue could dominate and loom so large. But so much of what you're describing is foreign policy, mm -hmm. right, in terms of the defining differences. Was it just that the conservatives had failed so badly on, on domestic policy? I mean, I know you, the civil rights uh, movement is an example. Well, they didn't like the both. They didn't like domestic policies either. Right. Uh, um, roll back. Uh, they they wanted to roll back the New Deal, and in particular, um, when Nixon shortly after announcing that he would visit China, in uh, so he makes the announcement in the summer of 1971. Within weeks, he makes another announcement that he's going to take the dollar off the gold standard, close the gold window, and impose wage and price controls on the American economy. Uh, Milton Friedman, the great libertarian, says this is the worst thing that Richard Nixon ever did as president, far worse than Watergate and the cover-up, was the imposition of wage and price controls. And, and uh, several prominent figures on the American right at the time meet in Buckley's uh, Masonette, his townhouse on Park Avenue, and write a statement. They call it the Manhattan Declaration. Right saying that they're suspending support for Richard Nixon's re-election until he fulfills certain of their demands. So domestic policy was, was also extremely important. You have to understand that the, uh, this movement was put a high degree of emphasis on principle, right? This, if you look at, say, Barry Goldwater's run for the presidency in 1964, Barry Goldwater stood for a set of ideas they're the ideas that he laid out for the American public in the conscience of a conservative, a quarter of which is are de, uh, of the book is devoted to foreign policy, right. but also very ideas of strict construction of the Constitution, the idea of limited government, the idea that there should states. be a, a, the states' rights, a very controversial phrase, um, but also the idea that there should be a market, a competitive market, and the government needs to stay out of the economic decisions of um, normal Americans. So they applied this set of ideas, Buckley called it the paradigm, to every set of political um, phenomena. And uh, they were approaching it from a position of critique. They were not at the center of things. It's not what you see in American politics today, where it's hard to disentangle the threads of the conservative intellectuals, the conservative movement, and the Republican Party. And criticism of the Republican Party from a conservative or free market perspective is often denounced as well, heresy or serving the interests of yeah, the well, left. I want to get to that um, in terms of what, where we are today. Uh, so enter Reagan. I mean, a, a moment of, uh, I guess, mutual promotion here, right? Because you have the cover of your book has that wonderful silhouette of, of Ronald Reagan. So I'm promoting your book at once, also promoting the namesake of Thank this you. institute. But if you look at your book through the lens of Reagan, I actually I, I was... I don't know, Matt, underwhelmed by your treatment of Reagan. I know you're a Reagan enthusiast, and we've talked since I've uh, uh, joined the, the Reagan Foundation. I know uh, great knowledge of, of, of Reagan's writings and, and, and what he did in office and prior to becoming president. But you actually, um, well, I'll just read what you wrote and get, get you to expand. That another problem with the conservative and liberal stories is Ronald Reagan. He is too large a presence in each. Why is that a problem? <laughs> well, it's a problem if you want to understand the nature of the American right. 
Um, one thing that happened when I expanded my narrative to begin in 1920 and end in 2020 is that Reagan seems more an aberration than the rule. And it becomes um, a mistake to judge the American right by the uh, personality and principles of Ronald Reagan, because they seem very unique. And so you're absolutely right. In my story, I try to not de-emphasize Reagan, because he is clearly one of the most consequential, if not most, con uh, most consequential figure in this history. But to portray him as one character in a cast that includes many different characters, many types of conservatives, many types of populists, and to also uh, repeat the idea, uh, reinforce the idea that Reagan was not inevitable. That uh, his uh, election in 1980 was the result of contingent events and his success also was uh, really a function of his, um, his will, his, his courage in continuing with policies that were very unpopular uh, for much of the early years of his presidency but paid dividends uh, in, the, in the final years. Uh, let's talk more about that. I mean, gives this speech, the time for choosing speech, with outlines his core conservative principles during that failed Goldwater campaign. Yes. Stays true to it, right, yeah. through his presidency. And Republicans still, well, okay, you're, 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 you're a smirking set. Perhaps he's not <laughs> true to it. You can, you can well, let me, let me give the story sure. and you, you, can, you can tell me why it's wrong. And it, it, it tends to be something conservatives are responding to, either you know, doing their own iteration of or at least explaining why they're deviating from it, at least through 2016. So by, you know, if you were to say to me that you know, the most important uh, Democratic president right, of the 20th century was FDR, and you want to me measure it by time in office mm -hmm. and time that the New Deal you know, mm -hmm. dominated the politics of democratic politics, you know, you, you, you go from times elected deep, I don't know, Carter maybe? You could argue that there's the same period of time that Reagan, mm -hmm. in this century that you're, you're covering, dominated Republican politics. So it, it, why, why is my kind of thinking here off? Why is that? Uh, well, it's not off. It's just that there's also, in the covered, coverage of the book, there's a period before and a period after right. where he's not as central. Look, I mean, one, a few things that are striking about Reagan. It's like half the time, I guess, is my point. The, and he looms large in that half, Roger, <laughs> yeah. as you know. I just want the silhouette to be a little bit larger, I guess what I'm saying. Um, the, uh, a few things about Reagan. One is the consistency of his beliefs over time. It is incredible that uh, he appears in my narrative in 1947 when he uh, talks to HUAC, the House Un-American Activities right. Committee, in his capacity as president of the Screen Actors Guild. And he gives an interview to the Hollywood gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, afterward, where he hits the themes of the importance of democracy, the um, uh, American exceptionalism, the importance of human freedom, the same themes that he'll discuss in his final address to the nation as president in 1989 and his final real public address to the country, which is at the RNC in 1992. It's amazing how these themes continue. Even in 1947, of course, he's a Democrat who has voted for uh, FDR four times, right? Um, and is about to vote for Harry Truman. Reagan was also a politician. And uh, so uh, the, the smirk, as you described it, when you said that he was the same figure in 1980 and 1988 as he was in 1964, was because that's not entirely true. Reagan was a very successful political figure, so he knew when he needed to moderate his positions. He knew when he had to come to an, a deal. He knew when he had to reverse the decision. 
He also knew when it was time to take on certain issues. So the Reagan of the 1970s is a little bit less libertarian and a lot more populist than the Reagan of 1964. So the Reagan of the 1970s in his campaigns against giving away the Panama Canal, you know, hitting, we, we built it, we paid for it, it's ours. His embrace of the religious right, which was a gamble, right? I mean, he was able to intuit that millions of evangelical and fundamentalist Christians were leaving the Democratic Party as a result of government action. Um, but what role this group would play in the future of the Republican Party in American politics was unclear. Reagan embraced it. I mean, Reagan embraced the moral majority and Jerry Falwell. Um, and, e and even though his first term did not emphasize the social issues as much as the religious right might have liked, when he runs for re-election in 1984, he speaks to a huge prayer meeting. He emphasizes prayer in schools throughout the presidency. That's why um, you know, Walter Mondale would make all the comments about Reagan being like an Ayatollah, right? Something that just kind of strikes us as fanciful today. So he was changeable, you know? I mean, even though his main ideas carried over um, throughout, throughout the many decades. I had a chance to chat with uh, the author, uh, scholar Marcus Witcher, who wrote this uh, book recently on kind of Reagan and the right. Um, so it kind of hits on some of the themes. And, and how he was, he kind of just goes through from the time Reagan was running for office, through his years in office, how he was consistently critiqued by the right. Yes. You yeah. know, never quite being enough for them, which is uh, just uh, well, uh, and when he, when he runs for governor in 1966, uh, he's facing two primary challengers, one from the liberal wing of the Republican Party and one from the right wing of the Republican Party and uh, associated with the John Birch Society. So he, he was always viewed with suspicion from uh, some quarters of the right who viewed him essentially as a, kind of a right wing liberal which is a phrase that's kind of popped up in some of the intellectual discussions you see online today. If he was a right-wing liberal, he was a very successful one. <laughs> Henry Olson uh, wrote a thought-provoking book, Many Reaganites Dislike, where he argues that uh, President Reagan was actually a new, new dealer through and through from the beginning. Yes. Integrate that argument in, um, that Henry puts forward, and obviously quite very committed to FDR and inspired and, and modeled right. certainly his communication off of FDR. But in terms of that line of thinking versus your, your treatment of Reagan and, and the right in your book. Sure. I, I think Ray, uh, Henry's book is very good. I slightly disagree with it. Uh, Reagan, uh, in his memoirs, talks about how um, the, the New Deal was a very good thing until it kind of got taken over by the professors and things like that, right? That became, they kind of crossed a line at a certain point where it became... Party left me, I didn't leave the party, that type exactly, of thing. Exactly. You know, um, it became too top-down, too centralized in Washington. Well, in truth, that was always kind of present in the New right. Deal. This may have been a kind of a post-hoc rationalization in, in Reagan's head. I think Henry Olson is right when he says that Reagan never really squarely took on the fundamental New Deal institutions while he was president and understood the political risks involved. There are parts, in fact, in the time for choosing where he critiques Social Security as being unfair to the taxpayer. And uh, it was that critique which actually led the Barry Goldwater High Command to sit on the speech for weeks. They weren't, oh, really, it was a political loser. 
they were afraid that they didn't want to associate their candidate, who was already too, too associated, they felt, with extremes on the right, with the idea of attacking Social Security. So after they're sitting on the speech, Reagan actually called Goldwater up and said, um, are you going to air the speech that I recorded for you? Goldwater said, what speech? And so he, gets his, he, go, he tells his aides to play it for him. They sit in the room, and I, I, I think it's in the house in Arizona, and they play the speech, and the lights come up, and Barry Goldwater, in his inimitable way, says, what the hell is wrong with that? <laughs> and he forces them to play A Time for Choosing in the last week of the election. And, of course, um, it has just this galvanic effect uh, right. on, on Reagan's life. Didn't quite help Goldwater. No, but of course, as George Will likes to say, uh, Goldwater won the 1964 election. It just took 16 years there to count the votes. <laughs> um, Buckley and Reagan. So uh, Buckley is clearly a hero throughout uh, your book. Tell us about how the public intellectual interacts with the politician. The politician impacts the public intellectual. It's almost like a winning formula, right? And, and whether or not it yeah. was the most, you know, whether the silhouette is sized correctly or should be larger or smaller, uh, each seems to be a necessary condition for the success of that piece of the conservative movement. Oh, I definitely agree with that. You know, for someone who was derided as a simpleton or um, an unsophisticated... I thought Buckley was pretty sophisticated. Okay. Well, I'm speaking of Reagan here. Oh, okay. Uh, Reagan was driven by ideas uh, and consumed them and loved them. He was a devoted subscriber to conservative publications uh, including National Review, Buckley's publication, as well as Human Events, the long-lived uh, newsletter based here in D.C. And it got to be a joke that um, when an issue of Human Events arrived at the White House, um, Reagan's aides, Michael Deaver and uh, James Baker, would try to hide it from him. Oh, yeah. Headaches. Because they were afraid that when Reagan would read the issue, he'd see something that would get him interested and say, what are we doing about this? And so... He found ways of going around this, actually sending the magazines to the residents. Are you so kidding? That, yeah, so that they couldn't, they couldn't interfere with it. But that's how much he was, he was devoted to ideas, and he was always searching for specifics that he could hang on his principled arguments. And so when you read a lot of these Reagan speeches or watch them on YouTube, it is amazing how he gets into the weeds. He talks about this tax rate, or he talks about this level of... Uh, weaponry or how many missiles the Soviets have. He is very specific. With Buckley, it was a, more than just an intellectual uh, relationship. It was a, actually a deep friendship um, that uh, developed over time. I believe they met in 1961, right around the time that Reagan was going to change his uh, party registration. Reagan is 50 years old at this point. He meets Buckley, who is about 14 years younger than he is. And uh, they hit it off, and um, they become pen pals, their families um, vacation together. When Reagan is elected, someone asks Buckley what job he would like in the administration, and Buckley's answer is he'd like to be the ventriloquist in the administration. Um, <laughs> Reagan jokes that he was actually thinking of sending Buckley to Afghanistan instead. Um, so this kind of carries on through, and they're very close personally. Um, and uh, it's a relationship, that I think you're right, that shows the, uh, the synthesis of ideas and individuals that can lead to, to, to great success when, when these individuals inhabit institutions like the presidency where they are in a position to put these ideas into effect. And 
Of course, Reagan really did put ideas that had been germinating with, on the American right for decades into effect once he comes into office in 1981. One more big idea. I mean, you can't read anything Reagan writes or listen to something he said without bumping into the word freedom. We were talking about this when we were uh, walking in. And, and I guess before reading your book, I, I just assumed that you know, political freedom, economic freedom, and these were things that were always like, part of the party of Lincoln, mm -hmm. right? Um, but not so much. And it's, how much of that was kind of Reagan bringing something in that perhaps wasn't embraced um, until he you know, achieved the, 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 you know, the leadership of the party? Well, um, you know, there, there's a tradition of uh, economic freedom and support for economic freedom and support for limited government, constitutional government that you see present actually at the beginning of my story that, that's present in Calvin Coolidge's presidency and his beliefs and in fact Reagan uh, hung Coolidge's portrait in the Oval Office while he was president so he did look to that. Um, Reagan stressed freedom abroad I think much more than uh, previous Republican presidents. Um, he, he was not just anti-communist, he was pro-democracy and in his speech to the um, British Parliament at West Westminster in 1982 where he outlines the idea of a national endowment for de a democracy, the idea that we have to support what he called the infrastructure of democracy, not just free elections, which I think may have been mis misunderstood in the subsequent years, but as Reagan points out, free press, civil society, free unions, right? All of these institutions that buttress uh, human liberty and support free societies. This was a major um, component to his worldview. He also was very much, I think, a populist in, in, in the sense that while a constitutional conservative, he truly believed in the decision-making capabilities of ordinary men and women. And he, you read some of these speeches, especially in the 1970s, his strong conviction was that if government simply removed its heavy hand, people would make the right decisions and they would uh, be able to flourish and they'd be able to live uh, in peace and prosperity. Um, that, that's populist or just we the people? Well, I, I mean, I think that is a version of populism that is populism at its best, mm. which is that it's populism that is future-oriented, it's hopeful, it's not conspiratorial, and it's, um, it's, not, uh, it's not reliant on, say, a, a strong man the to, to, enforce, the deep, yeah. to enforce the will of the people. Um, and also doesn't scapegoat uh, minority groups, which is an important distinction. Reagan's populism scapegoated big government, yeah. which is kind of an abstraction, or as he used to tell it, you know, a little clique of men and women in a faraway capital. That's who we're arguing He didn't like about. the bureaucracy. He didn't like the bureaucracy, but that's different than blaming, say, um, groups of people who are, uh, who are new to the, and we, who we don't like. Well, we're going to talk about, in a moment, you know, where we are today in 2016, but you know, he mentioned Coolidge up in the in the White House when he was president. Jackson, yeah, was there prominently in the Oval. Yes. How does that figure? I mean, that's obviously more than a symbol. It's a, it, it was a message, and it reflected Reagan's thinking. And well, I think it a, a line to this. Yes, I think it is a line to that type of populism I describe. I think it's uh, recognition of uh, Reagan's past as a Democrat. And um, as he says in the memoirs, uh, it's, he left the, 
Democratic Party when the party abandoned its tradition of supporting the little guy uh, against the larger forces um, working against him. And of course, uh, Jackson is uh, one of the most iconic figures in, in support of the little guy. One last one about Reagan, then I want to move to kind of the state of, of the right today and the conservative movement. Um, it just strikes me, what happened in 1976 on the convention floor is so interesting because it reveals such a departure from where the movement is today. Not only did Reagan challenge the incumbent president, Gerald Ford, in a contested convention, which is interesting in its own right, but one of the major issues that was animating it was the rollback rollback of the Soviet Union and this getting rid of detente and this notion that we had to have this very aggressive foreign policy uh, towards the Soviet Union. You know, the, the, the Republicans and the right from the, from the Coolidge era, you know, to that point, what, what, how, how did he get the party behind him? See, because it's such a departure from kind of sure. you know, where, you, where you start your book. Well, um, I mean, the, the big change there is World War II and yeah. the growth of Soviet power after the war, right? Um, the Soviet Union in the 1920s was beset by civil war, by internal struggles. Um, it, it's not until the 1930s that Stalin consolidates his rule, and then, of course, he massively benefits from uh, World War II. Um, so uh, the, the Republican Party was very anti-communist, and the American right had embraced this policy of what I called um, engaged nationalism uh, in the Cold War because of the perceived threat from Soviet communism. I, look, many uh, Republicans, especially the new Republicans who were descended from immigrants from Eastern and so South, uh, Southern Europe, um, knew people who lived in captive nations, right? These were populations that were related to Americans. Uh, the Soviet Union's thumb was on the scale of much of the Earth's landmass. Um, and so it didn't take much to get Republicans angry about the Soviet Union. The question was, how would you approach the problem? Right. In 1976, the debate was over what was called morality and foreign policy. Right. It wasn't build a wall, is my point. No. Um, but it was about welcoming dissidents. And one of the major critiques of the right at that time of the incumbent Gerald Ford was that he had refused to meet with Alexander Solzhenitsyn right. Actually, on the day that Alexander Solzhenitsyn was across the street here visiting the AFL-CIO. And uh, while there had been attempts made to get Solzhenitsyn into the Oval Office to meet Gerald Ford or in a side passage where he, they could say, uh, Henry Kissinger um, basically squashed that idea. And it became a real point of contention on the American right and among some of the anti-communist Democrats who were coming to the right at and this period. And Kissinger period. was taking the realist view that we don't want to provoke. We don't know. want to upset our arms negotiations right, with the, the Soviets. Um, and it, embracing the dissident, embracing this moral hero would be too controversial. So in the morality and foreign policy plank that the Reagan forces are able to get into the 1976 Republican platform, Solzhenitsyn is mentioned. And the idea that the United States should support dissidents should support champions of freedom in dark places is becomes part of the Republican Party platform. And when Reagan is called unexpectedly to the stage after Gerald Ford accepts a nomination and President Ford asks Reagan to address the crowd, Reagan actually brings up the fact that this plank was inserted in the Republican platform as hope 
for his movement and for the country's future. So this idea that it's not just realpolitik, it's not just great power competition, but there are real values and ideals at stake in foreign policy. And among those is the idea of human freedom. It was very important to Ronald Reagan and it was a consistent thread throughout his life from, from when he was a Democrat to when he was a Republican president. And he got the party behind him. The movement was behind him. You note in the book on that moment, there was buyer's remorse. They were thinking they had just nominated the wrong person. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the soul of the party had been with Reagan uh, uh, for a while, and uh, he clearly captured it there in 1976. But, you know, um, th if Reagan hadn't won that North Carolina primary, which really revived his challenge to Ford, we might not have had a President Reagan, because by that point in his life, you know, he's getting up, he's 65 years old, and um, he, he could well have been the end of his political and, career. And some of his advisors were telling him to pull out at that time. Right? Exactly, but, was, but he, he, you know, they're in the will. plane, yep. and they land in California, and they find out that Jesse Helms uh, and others in North Carolina had helped swing this huge turnaround. It revived his challenge to Ford, and revived his political career. Even though he didn't win the nomination, he put himself in a commanding position for the 1980 campaign. Interesting, Helms, one of those leading figures on the right at times during Reagan's presidency, was highly critical of him as well, where he didn't. Well, especially when, as I say, as a politician, yeah. arms control and Reagan later embraced uh, negotiations and arms control. You begin your book, um, which is almost, uh, uh, I think, a great way to talk about how everything we've discussed about what Reagan built kind of comes to an end. And you do that by talking about a building in Washington, D.C., 1150 17th Street, which is where Matt Conanetti kind of got his start. Yeah. And this fantastic world, which you could describe for us here, um, just uh, a number of years later finds itself, uh, well, wrecked. Right. And the building's no longer there. And it's almost a metaphor for uh, a lot of what we've just discussed, yeah. where it stands today. It's so It's not almost a metaphor. It, it, it is it, a metaphor. It is, there we go. 1150 17th Street. Take us through that metaphor. You know, the introduction is usually the last thing you write in a book, and it's also the hardest thing you write in a book. But uh, while I finally sat down to turn to it, I did have this image of showing up to Washington, D.C. in July of 2003 as a 22-year-old. Uh, the core curriculum from Columbia just right. inspired yeah, you. Kind you of put me on my on. way. Right. And uh, I was showing up for my first day on the job at the Weekly Standard magazine. Which is no longer. Yep. And um, which was housed in this building at 17th and M, not far from here. Um, but which also the building housed a lot of different conservative institutions that were very influential at that time the beginning of the George W. Bush presidency, the beginning of the Iraq War, the Freedom Agenda. Uh, the American Enterprise Institute, where I work today, uh, was then housed in the top three floors of, of 1150 17th Street. The Weekly Standard was on the fifth floor. Next to the Weekly Standard was a very small think tank called the Project for a New American Century, which um, had played some role in advocating um, regime change in Iraq. Nearby was the Ethics and Public Policy Center uh, near off of uh, M Street. Uh, the offices of the Public Interest Journal uh, were uh, at 16th and, K and uh, L Streets, up, up the block here. And the Hoover Institution's DC offices were then uh, in DuPont Circle South in a building right there in Connecticut Avenue. And it occurred to me as I was writing these pages that that whole world is gone now. Uh, it, Hoover is now a downtown. 
Public interest closed in 2005. EPPC is still there, but um, the Weekly Standard is gone. It closed in 2018. AEI moved to another building where I work now, uh, just uh, east of DuPont Circle. And the building itself was destroyed in 2016. So I thought this was a, a metaphor. Was that, was that Trump's construction company that was responsible for <laughs> yeah. wrecking that building? I don't know. I, I will say that uh, after I wrote the book, and uh, the book is published, a friend of mine said that he was reading these pages, and he told me that I forgot to mention the fact that a fire broke out in the hulking ruin of 1150 17th Street on election night 2016, to just oh make the metaphor <laughs> that more on the nose. Wow. Uh, so, so we know that. Um, it's a symbol, I think, of the uh, displacement of the conservative governing class that came to power with Ronald Reagan and consolidated over the next 30-some um, years. Uh, that conservative governing class, I think, is no more. And um, it has changed. Parts of it have split off. Uh, parts of it are no longer Republican. Um, other parts have made their peace with the new ascendant forces in the Republican Party. And so I thought it was a nice way to open the book um, and to kind of reinforce the idea that this is book is not just a history, which I try to be as dispassionate and fair-minded as possible, as scholarly as possible throughout the book. Um, but it is also told by someone who has been associated with these causes and institutions for the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I remember as a young Hill staffer, when we go off Hill, it would be to one of those offices in around that area, yeah. you know, AI briefing, something that we Now it strikes me that the energy is really on Capitol Hill. And you make that, that point. That's where Heritage yeah. is, that's where Hillsdale's Kirby Center is, um, that's where the uh, new Claremont Center for the American Life, I think is what it's called, that's also located there. That seems to be more um, the, where the energy is on this new Trump populist America first right. So this new President Trump's, you know, populist, America first, right. That's what's replaced it. That's what's standing. And that's where your, your book ends. Uh, I want to take a couple of minutes to have you reflect on, not your book, but what we're doing at the Reagan Foundation out in California with our, our Time for Choosing series. We, we actually started the conversation with Reagan uh, to this evening, uh, focusing on that speech. We, of course, uh, have been sponsoring this series, looking at the future of the Republican Party, the conservative movement, bringing voices who worked in the Trump administration or you know, were politically identified with President Trump, and then voices who are not, and kind of making the stage available to all. Um, my reflection, but I'd I love for you to, to tell me I'm wrong or, or give a different perspective. We've heard from everybody from Vice President Pence to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Governor Christie Nome to Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, last night it was Governor Larry Hogan. Even those who most closely associate with Trump's movement, they don't strike me as departing in, a, in, in any great degree from the principles of core values that Ronald, and I'm not saying because of where I sit or where I work, I'm just listening to the speeches uh, that were articulated in Time for Choosing you know, a long time ago, um, and, and certainly aren't a rejection of that. Maybe one or two speeches, you could say they're trying to do some sort of hybrid Reagan and Trump. We had Larry Kudlow come here one time and said that they're one and the same. You know, um, I couldn't have been talking about tone, but maybe in terms of ideas. Give me your take on that. And, uh, you, because perhaps the intellectual circles, right? It's no longer Buckley. It's now 
you know, folks from Heritage, Kevin Roberts, or you know, whoever is doing uh, speaking for for Claremont, but at least of the elected officials on uh, the ideas when they're forced to articulate the policies, is it so radically kind of different from from, from Reagan? I, I'm hearing on the stage. I'm, ref I'm, I'm sure. Well, it'd be interesting, say, if you have the new Republican candidate for Senate in Ohio come to the Reagan Library, what he might say, because he might take a critical, more critical view of Reagan right. and Reagan's right. legacy. Um, look, there, uh, the, there's a way of paying homage to Reagan while believing or recognizing that the situation has changed. I mean, Reagan's communications advisor for two years in his second term was Patrick Buchanan. Yeah. The, the, the leader of the paleo-conservatives, the, the great reviver of the America First legacy of Charles Lindbergh in my story. Um, so there's ways that you can I, recognize Reagan's significance and importance in the context of the Cold War, but also believe that uh, the situation has changed and that the party should change with it. I do think that on the broadest level, if you go back and you look at Reagan in 1980, his, his view was of openness. So he was, uh, he was the originator of the idea of a North American free trade zone. Yes. That comes out of the 1980 campaign. He was supportive of immigrants throughout his career, um, and he uh, signed the uh, Bipartisan Immigration Control Act of 1986, actually kind of leery of some of the enforcement me mechanisms, but but, you know, he, he thought that it would Which Tom Collins quick to point out was the greatest mistake of the Reagan presidency. That's he said that, that. So he made news to, when to he said up, that, yes. right? But, but Reagan generally very supportive of immigration. On foreign policy, I, you know, uh, again, we spoke about his um, arguments for the centrality of freedom, his uh, elevation of Gene Kirkpatrick and Elliot Abrams to high positions in the State Department where they emphasized human rights, yeah. but a tough-minded human rights policy that... And emphasize the human rights violations of our enemies rather than of our anti-communist allies. Um, those ideas of openness, American openness to the, to the world, I think have come under severe strain in recent years. And if you do look at this return to the principles of the old American right, the idea is closure. The idea is insulating our industry from economic competition, especially from China of closing the border, um, but not just uh, closing the border uh, to illegal immigration, but also heavily reforming legal immigration. Um, and of course, closure in terms of our involvement elsewhere, uh, a reluctance to become engaged in, um, in foreign affairs and in foreign conflicts. And uh, again, as J.D. Vance put it uh, during this primary campaign, what does Ukraine mean to him? Yeah, right? I, I, no, no doubt. I think J.D. Vance is a great example. Rand Paul it reflects some of that. But in terms of the voices that served in the Trump administration that would celebrate their association with President Trump, uh, immigration is one I, I would give you, but, but it's not as sharp. It's not as a severe departure. Well, they're speaking at your library. Well, but, it, uh, but they're invited. Yeah. So, I mean, it would kind of be rude of them to come and I'm just not sure these people care so on much your parade, about being right? polite. I mean, uh, I, I, they're, they're speaking to a larger audience. Um, I, look, can I put yeah. it this way? Oh, go ahead. I think there's no future for the American right that doesn't have some synthesis of Reaganism and Trumpism. And In terms of addition and winning, you're saying, politically? Uh, politically. I mean, it falls apart. Um, one of the themes of my book is a relationship between intellectuals and populists.
And what the intellectuals find in the early years of the post-war American con conservative movement is that they can't get anywhere without the populists because the populists supply the votes. The populists are who their constituents are. Yeah. And so it becomes a dynamic relationship over decades of how to harness that populist grassroots energy but also channel it in productive ways that A, don't alienate the American people and B, lead to concrete policies that can actually address the sources of populist discontent. It, that relationship has broken down over the past decade or so. I think there is a new generation of intellectuals who are trying to find ways to take that populism yes. and address some of the challenges of our day, China, the border, the deaths of despair in the opioid crisis, the set of issues we associate with what we call big tech, but I haven't seen any concrete action on, those, on that side of things, and I think the question remains open just how successful they will be. Uh, before we close out, I've got to get your take on, on the news this week with the leak out of the Supreme Court with uh, the draft opinion authored by Justice Alito, and which would reverse uh, Roe. I mean, there's so much to say about that in terms of the Supreme Court as an institution, uh, what it actually means in terms of what we'll see this court doing, whether that is actually you know, going to be a, the majority opinion authored by Alito, or we'll see something else. Feel free to comment on that. But I'm most interested in how Roe and, 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 and this expected reversal uh, will impact the right and the movement and the currents that you so, you know, spend so much time studying mm -hmm. and, and, and capturing your book. How is it going to impact? It's, well, it's significant. I mean, this is huge, right? I, I'm, I mean, if Roe is reversed, that is a huge uh, decision. It's the overturning of a precedent that's almost 50 years old. Um, and, but it's the beginning, not the end. Um, as Alito says in this draft opinion, uh, which Chief Justice Roberts has said is authentic, right. um, all he is doing in this decision, all the majority is doing, is returning the issue of abortion to the states and to the political process. And so what that means is that the pro-life movement will now have to um, redouble its efforts to enact serious legislation, also to do so in a way that um, doesn't, uh, you know, uh, expose Republicans to, to losses, right? You have to do it in a way that encourages some type of compromise or moderation so that you actually get um, results. Um, you have to think about um, ways of reducing abortion, of caring for uh, mothers who are thinking of abortion, of dealing with uh, adoption. All of these, there's a whole set of issues that come uh, after Roe that we need to be concerned about. I do just want to say, though, if it does happen, this is a remarkable achievement for the American right. Oh, yeah. I hear a lot about how you know conservatives haven't done anything. Conservatives haven't conserved anything. Why, why are you, Matt Continetti, you know, doing what you do? Well, you're worthless. Well, <laughs> leaving me aside, <laughs> leaving me aside. Those are my relatives. No. <laughs> leaving me aside. It's pretty. Crazy. Conservatism achieved quite a bit. Conservatism comes into being after World War II in opposition to global communism. Well, the Soviet Union isn't there anymore. And yeah, we have problems with Russia, but it's not the Soviet Union. Those were much worse problems, right? 
the religious right, the conservative legal movement, really comes into being in the 1970s over issues such as abortion, over judicial activism, as yes. we found in the Roe decision. And now, two generations later, we may be on the verge of seeing that achieved. Oh, it's, it's rem I so mean, I, I think it's a reminder to people who are so quick to condemn the establishment or the elites that once again, if this decision holds, if it becomes a reality, that's an example of the elites and the people working together and, and achieving a success. So it's not something to be dismissed lightly. And I think it's a confirmation of the idea that the people and elites need to work together in the furtherance of conservative aims. Interesting. I, it was remarkable to me during the confirmation hearings of, of Justice Jackson recently, where she, even though she was a clerk of Justice Breyer, basically said we all became originalists following Scalia's methodology. I mean, it was yeah. uh, you know, a lawyer, but not somebody who follows the Supreme Court jurisprudence and the views of clerks and, and you know, judges. That was just remarkable to well, if you, And if you read the draft decision by Justice Alito, it is a master class in originalism. And it talks about text and tradition. It talks about the judicial it's reasoning. It's one thing for Alito. It's another thing where you have the yeah. nominee for President Biden. But, but Roger, they don't actually mean it. Well, okay, okay, okay. well you She's know. She's just being nice. Seemed, Alito means it. It was a way to get confirmed. Well, I, I, I certainly would expect Alito to, have, to, to be committed to originalism. More surprising, <laughs> Justice Jackson to even say it. Um, all right, let's wrap up here. You're always good for this. This is a lightning round where you share with us your favorite book on Reagan, speech and Reagan quote. You've done this for us once before. I'm sure the music will start playing. Give me, give me something, perhaps something you got from your research that you didn't have the last time uh, we chatted. Uh, well, actually, uh, a very rare book, out of print book, but it's called Sincerely Ronald Reagan, which is a series of letters compiled by his longtime assistant, Helene Von Dam. And I obtained a mass market paperback edition of this book. It was all beaten up. Just remarkable correspondence between Reagan and his constituents while he was governor of um, California. And it's not, the, it's not the best for scholarly purposes because it's not indexed and some of the addresses are left and dates are left out. But it is just a reminder that, um, among other things, Reagan could write. I mean, as anyone who's read the diaries knows, yes, yeah. He was a good writer. He, uh, he had a way with words. Um, and it's also a reflection in these letters how he was applying his general principles to very concrete problems or even just kind of the, um, you know, kind of personal issues that would come up or things like that. Um, so he, uh, Reagan's I, constituent mail. I, I think it's, a, it's one of the nice things that I've uncovered in my research. Matt Connery, thank you so much. Congratulations on your new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War of American Conservatism. Great having you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.